Richard Nixon. Well, I'm not a crook. Ronald Reagan. Tear down this wall. George W. Bush. I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. And Donald Trump. And a friend of mine for a long time, he uh, only likes politics. If you ask him about how are the Yankees doing, he has no interest. If you ask him almost anything, he likes politics and he's a professional at the highest level Roger Stone. All of these presidents relied on one man to secure their seat in the Oval Office. That man is Roger Stone. This is the Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. This is Roger Stone, and this is the Roger Stone Show at 77 WABC Radio. We are the crown jewel of AM radio. This is actually our 30th week here at 77 WABC, and for the next two hours, well, we'll be right here talking news, politics, food, style, and more. So don't touch that dial. This has been a tumultuous week uh, in American politics. For those who were dejected or downtrodden, who thought that perhaps the country was uh, going to hell in a handbasket and that there was no way to survive, those who thought that although uh, Donald Trump would win a free, fair, honest, and transparent election, uh, that he might be taken down by the tsunami of lawfare and the various cases filed against him in both New York State, Florida, D.C., uh, and Fulton County, Georgia, well, there are extraordinary developments. Uh, President Trump's lawyers argued in the federal case in D.C. before Judge uh, Chutkin uh, that he had, based on Supreme Court precedent, absolute immunity from prosecution because he was acting on January 6th in his capacity as a president. Now, the courts have upheld the principle of executive privilege uh, and immunity uh, right up until they didn't uh, in the case of the United States versus Nixon. The Supreme Court threw out several hundred years of precedent because, well, Richard Nixon was extraordinarily unpopular, and that was, in my opinion, uh, a political decision. Uh, the judge ruled against Trump, in other words, said that Trump had no immunity because of his status as president, uh, and Trump announced his intention uh, to appeal that ruling to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, I'm familiar with that Circuit Court of Appeals. They are the ones who sat on my uh, writ of mandamus when I was gagged by an unconstitutional gag order and not able to defend myself. Uh, and they sat on it for eight months and ultimately punted the decision back to the original trial judge, claiming that I, well, hadn't asked her to remove the gag order, which they themselves, uh, which she herself had put in place, which, of course, she never would have done. Now, uh, Jack Smith, the special counsel, uh, has uh, decided to ask the Supreme Court to leapfrog the appeals court uh, and take up the question themselves uh, without any decision from the appeals court. 
this demonstrates uh, that Jack Smith is interested in timing. He's not interested in justice. He's interested in timing. In other words, he wants his case against President Donald Trump to go to trial uh, as early in the presidential campaign year in pos as possible. In fact, right now, the current trial date prior to all matters being stayed by the judge this week was actually March 4th the day before the Super Tuesday primary, in which the greatest single bulk of delegates who will nominate the Republican candidate for president in 2024 will be chosen. Uh, even the Washington Post uh, had an editorial uh, saying that this demonstrates that Smith's goal is a speedy trial for political purposes uh, and not justice which proves, I guess, that, well, the blind pig finds the acorn every once in a while. Uh, in any event, for the short term, then, all actions uh, in the D.C. action uh, against uh, President Trump are stayed uh, pending uh, a decision by the U.S. Uh, Supreme Court. In the same week, shockingly, uh, the Supreme Court agreed to hear uh, a case filed by a January 6th defendant who claims that the law uh, uh, that provides uh, that it is a crime to obstruct uh, a, an official proceeding uh, was uh, invalid, uh, does not fit the case of himself and many, many others uh, who were convicted uh, on January 6th related crimes. Now, interestingly, this interpretation of that law came from the Enron case. You may not remember the Enron case. That's the case where Andrew Weissman, a federal prosecutor who's now a legal analyst for MSNBC, uh, was uh, ultimately successful in convicting uh, all of the top executives of Enron, uh, also destroying Arthur Anderson, uh, their accounting firm, only to have all of those convictions reversed, uh, and Mr. Weissman himself tongue-lashed by the judge in that case uh, for judicial misconduct. So I would submit to you uh, that the architect of the use of this law is the same architect of its use in the Enron case. Now, uh, is there reason uh, for optimism? Well, let's remember 21 states uh, led by Texas asked the U.S. Supreme Court to, uh, to examine the election results in 2020. It is exceedingly rare uh, that uh, when a large number of states ask the high court for judicial review, that it is not granted. Normally, any time five states, uh, uh, through their attorney generals, ask the court to uh, take cert on a matter, they do so. But for whatever reason, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court refused to ever review the question of the results of the last presidential election, nor have they been willing to examine the entire question of mail-in ballots, which I think may be unconstitutional. So is there hope? Well, we shall see. Joining us on today's show is Trump's personal attorney, uh, Alina Haba, 
who has just uh, wrapped up the New York trial, the so-called evaluation trial, uh, where Trump is accused of inflating the value of his assets in order to borrow monies from banks. <clears throat> this is an extraordinary case. Well, because no other person or company has ever been prosecuted under this law, uh, nor uh, have there been any victims. All of the banks had their own due diligence, used their own lawyers. Uh, Trump was a primo client uh, who paid back uh, all the loans on time and with a very, very healthy interest. It's actually estimated that the banks made $40 million on their loans. No victim, no crime. Uh, Alina Haba, again, who I think is the brightest, uh, most articulate, uh, and most persuasive, as well as perhaps the most combative of President Donald Trump's lawyers, joins us today to talk about that case to the extent that she can do so because there's a gag order in place, as well as the other cases that have been filed against President Donald Trump. You certainly aren't going to want to miss Alina Haba. And then Tucker Carlson joins us for 40 minutes today to talk about whether the federal government really has evidence of UFOs, uh, the potential for a Tucker Carlson vice presidency, uh, and whether China can take over the United States of America uh, without firing a shot. Uh, now, in the interest of full disclosure, Tucker Carlson has been a friend of mine for 30 years. Uh, he wrote the introduction to my book, Stone's Rules. Uh, he also has a star turn in the Netflix documentary, Get Me Roger Stone. Uh, you definitely want to stay tuned for our segment with Tucker Carlson uh, right here uh, on the Roger Stone Show. Also joining us will be Gavin Wax. Uh, he has the high privilege and honor of being chairman of the New York Young Republican Club. It is the largest, oldest, and most vibrant Young Republican Club uh, in America. Uh, and only a week ago, they held their 111th uh, Christmas gala. Uh, and who showed up to address the crowd other than President Donald J. Trump himself. So Gavin Wax is going to join us here on the Roger Stone Show to talk about how great that was and his interaction with the 45th and the 47th president. Could Andrew Cuomo be the next mayor of New York City? You know, it's actually a distinct possibility. I mean, uh, first of all, <clears throat> Uh, should Mayor Eric Adams either resign uh, under the weight of the burgeoning corruption scandal, uh, and uh, let me say right up front, he hasn't been convicted or charged with any crime yet, in all fairness, uh, but there's certainly controversy swirling around him, or uh, should he be removed after being convicted, uh, then there would be a special election called by Governor Kathy Hochul uh, 
uh, for the office of mayor. But here's how that works. There are no Republican and Democrat primaries. That is foregone. All of the candidates run in one election. So you can bet that there would be both multiple Democrats and Well, I'm not sure there'll be multiple Republicans. My guess is that my friend Curtis Slewa, who you can hear every day here right at 77 WABC, would probably take a leave of absence and be a candidate again. But Andrew Cuomo has $60 million in the bank in unused campaign funds. That's $60 million that he could use Uh, in a wide-open race for mayor. Perhaps this explains the higher profile uh, Andrew Cuomo has taken in recent days. Uh, I would not be surprised to see him run, and I would not rule out the possibility uh, of his winning. We're going to be watching this very, very closely. Meanwhile, uh, George Santos, uh, who grows increasingly embarrassing, uh, was uh, essentially thrown out of the U.S. Congress. I actually think it's unfair. I'm not particularly a fan of Mr. Santos, and the charges against him seem extraordinarily uh, uh, serious. But uh, I think he deserved his day in court. After all, the U.S. Congress did not expel the legendary Congressman Adam Clayton Powell, who represented a Harlem district, uh, was the chief pastor at the Abyssinian Baptist Church, uh, one of the country's leading civil rights leaders, until Powell was convicted of a crime. Santos, in my opinion, deserved his day in court. If he went to trial and was convicted, he most certainly should have been expelled from the House. But that's not the way it went down. To me, it's shocking that Adam Schiff can tell so many lies, that Eric Swalwell can consort with a Russian spy, actually let a female Russian spy place uh, an employee in his office when he had access as a member of the House Intelligence Committee to classified and sensitive national security data, yet he's still in Congress, uh, yet we toss George Santos out. Republicans must not be very mindful of how extraordinarily narrow uh, their margin is in the House, Uh, With the retirement of uh, Kevin McCarthy, uh, that seat uh, is likely to be won by a Republican, but not necessarily. Uh, And uh, if you look at the third district race, it looks to me like uh, Nassau County Republicans uh, are about to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. Uh, Yesterday I read they had chosen Nassau County Legislature Maisie Melissa Phillip to run against former Congressman Tom Swasey in the upcoming special election for the seat left vacant by Santos. Uh, Pete King, a friend of mine who appears often here on WABC, confirmed this. Now, I don't know uh, Ms. Phillip personally, 
uh, but I know that she's been a registered Democrat since 2012. Presumably, she'll need a Wilson-Pakula petition uh, to get on the ballot, although perhaps in a special election situation, uh, that is waived. I, I think the Republicans have made an extraordinary mistake. Uh, as I said on this show last weekend, the strongest possible candidate would have been Cara Castronova. Cara Castronova ran a valiant campaign for the assembly uh, within the third congressional district. She is uh, not only a ranked uh, actual boxing champion, uh, she's also a great investigative journalist who is, well, half Italian and half Asian. Uh, I think she would have been a much, much stronger candidate. But let's remember, this is just a special election, meaning uh, this contest will have to be held again next November, uh, and uh, perhaps the Republicans will come to their senses uh, and have a stronger candidate if Swazi, as if as expected, retakes the seat that he previously held. Folks, if you're just tuning in, this is the Roger Stone Show uh, here on 77 WABC. Alina Haba, President Donald Trump's personal attorney, uh, who led his defense in a New York courtroom over the last month, uh, longer than a month, uh, and Tucker Carlson, both join us along with Gavin Wax, chairman of the New York Young Republican Club, uh, coming up uh, in the next two hours. Well, uh, the folks at MSNBC are at it again. Uh, and MSNBC's uh, Ari Melber uh, reports this week that when Jack Smith submitted a filing saying he had obtained Donald Trump's cell phone records and the cell phone records of one other individual that Trump either talked to or texted with on January 6th, Melber said on his MSNBC program, well, that must be Roger Stone. Uh, he cited my decision and actually played the video of my pleading the Fifth Amendment before the now completely discredited January 6th committee when I specifically was asked whether I had spoken or texted with Trump that day uh, and he used that video as proof. I mean, as a lawyer, Ari Melber knows that the exercise of your Fifth Amendment rights specifically does not mean that your answer would have incriminated you, nor can it legally be read uh, as evidence of guilt. Melber also referred to me in his report as a defendant. I am not a defendant in any current proceeding. That is defamatory. Look, folks, here's the short answer. I had no communication whatsoever with President Donald Trump or any member of the White House staff or his staff, uh, including the campaign staff, uh, on January 5th or 6th. Period. End of story. No text message, no phone call. Uh, what uh, what Mr. Melber engaged in was vicious and malicious, baseless speculation. Uh, it is outrageous, but one of the things I've learned is that 
well, I'm a public figure, uh, and therefore you can defame me, and many, many people do. Then adding insult to injury, Ari Melber, uh, who has this weird, almost sick obsession with me, uh, went on to bring on uh, David Kelly and a former assistant U.S. attorney to uh, speculate that if Trump had spoken to Stone that day and did so prior to the assault on the Capitol by the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, it would be proof of a crime. That's called baseless, irresponsible conjecture. But then who is uh, Mr. Kelly? He's the federal prosecutor who received an extraordinarily lucrative conservatorship from U.S. Attorney Chris Christie in return for giving Chris Christie's brother a pass on an insider trading case in which everybody else in the investigation was charged and several of them went to prison. It's really amazing, but the only way to explain all of this uh, is that, well, I'm clickbait. What do I mean by that? Well, what it means is that anytime my name appears in the headline of a story, whether the story is accurate or inaccurate, uh, it gets clicks, uh, and therefore MSNBC earns money. I grow tired of being a punching bag. This is not the first time. Previously, Mr. Melber played uh, now discredited testimony from Cassidy Hutchison. She's a former aide uh, to uh, White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, and she claimed that the president told Meadows to call me and General Michael Flynn on January 5th to, quote, find out what would happen on January 6th. She later went on to say that Meadows had skipped a meeting in a war room in the Willard Hotel, but had later been briefed on the meeting by Stone and Flynn. That's called perjury, folks. None of those phone calls ever took place. My phone records prove it. I presume that Mark Meadows' phone records and his testimony will prove it. And now Cassidy Hutchison is going back and filed a 15-page amendment to her sworn testimony before the January 6th committee. Sounds to me like a woman who's beginning to sweat a perjury indictment. Also interesting, uh, a whistleblower uh, by the name of Michael Moynihan, uh, with a distinguished record of service to the country in the Central Intelligence Agency, has come forward as a whistleblower and filed a formal complaint uh, against uh, Special Counsel Jack Smith, providing audio recordings and documents uh, allegedly proving uh, that Smith solicited and took bribes as a prosecutor in The Hague, specifically going to those who may have committed crimes in the war in Kosovo and telling them that they could avoid prosecution uh, if they were willing uh, to, uh, well, to wire or transfer large sums of money to Jack Smith. Now, in fairness, again, I stress that this is an allegation. Uh, Mr. Moynihan's complaint, which I have read, 
seems uh, extraordinarily compelling. Uh, but the real question is, why have we read nothing about this? I've scoured the pages of the New York Times. I've looked in the Washington Post, uh, the Wall Street Journal. Nowhere can I find any evidence uh, of uh, this being reported. By the way, now would be a great time for you to go to the App Store and download the 77 WABC radio app. That's because you don't want to miss any of the amazing programming that we have here on the crown jewel of AM radio. So uh, be sure to load that into your phone, whether it's uh, my friend uh, Larry Kudlow uh, or whether it's uh, the Cats Roundtable or whether it's uh, uh, the King of the Night Owls, Frank Marano. Uh, you don't want to miss any of the amazing programming here at 77 WABC. So I urge you uh, to download that app now before you forget. Uh, if uh, you were watching, <clears throat> the very controversial Alex Jones uh, has uh, returned to Twitter where he was banned. Now let me be very, very clear. I know Alex Jones. I've known him since the 50th anniversary of the Kennedy assassination. I don't agree with him on everything. In fact, I strongly disagree with him on many, many things. I also strongly agree with him on many things. Uh, we're going to talk to Tucker Carlson in just a little bit uh, about the uncanny accuracy of a number of predictions that Alex Jones has made and why and how he made them. Uh, but in all honesty, uh, I believe in free speech. And frankly, the speech that most must be most vigorously protected is the speech that you disagree with, the speech that you find repugnant. That's where the First Amendment is most important. It's not about preserving the free speech you like. It's about preserving the free speech you hate. Uh, therefore, I, for one, am glad to see uh, Alex Jones back in the saddle. I continue to fight the same battle, folks. Uh, yes, I'm up at X, uh, formerly known as Twitter. There you can find me as Roger J. Stone Jr. Uh, there is a fake Roger Stone there, a fugazi. Uh, it's identity theft. Uh, he's there on X. He is uh, in direct messages soliciting bank information from people and uh, offering people jobs. Folks, it's not me. Guess what? There's also a fake Roger Stone on Facebook. That's not me either. And then I learned there's a fake Roger Stone at YouTube. That one is actually verified. So uh, you have to be very careful, folks. Uh, I filed all the appropriate uh, requests uh, for uh, that these be taken down. Uh, I have charged uh, identity theft because that's what this is. Uh, but unfortunately, nothing happens. Anyway, we have a great show in store for you. I'm Roger Stone. This is the Roger Stone Show at 77 WABC. Grab that app and download it to your phone right now. Otherwise, Buckle your seats. I'll be right back with The Roger Stone Show. Tucker Carlson, Alina Haba, and much, much more. 
This is the Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. This is the Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. A man who's gone through hell, but he's kept going and he's smart and he's strong and people love him. Not everybody, but people love him and respect him. Roger Stone. Now, here's Roger Stone. Welcome back. This is the Roger Stone Show at 77 WABC Radio. We are the crown jewel of AM radio. And now it is really my great privilege, indeed my honor, to have uh, as our guest Alina Haba, who is an extraordinarily able attorney who represents President Donald J. Trump. Now, I'm a pretty shrewd observer of these things. To my mind, uh, based on her performance both in the courtroom, based on what I've read, and outside the courtroom, based on what I've seen, I really think Alina Haba is one of the most effective, one of the most articulate, one of the most knowledgeable, and one of the most persuasive lawyers that I have seen in 45 years in the American public arena. And it is my great honor to welcome Alina Haba here to the Roger Stone Show. Yeah, I'm so happy to be here. Well, you are uh, now a, a grizzled veteran of the New York court system, uh, having just gone through the, uh, the let's call it the valuation trial, uh, before Judge Angoran. Uh, where does that case stand today, uh, and what happens next? It is completed all but for the uh, closing arguments, which will be January 11th. We are in, I would say, what will be the beginning of a very long haul of appellate procedure on that, because, um, as you know, Roger, the judge found us guilty before we even walked into court. So we've had an uphill battle, frankly, um, with our hands tied behind our back between gag orders and everything else. But the trial really went very well. Um, you know, obviously it won't be reported that way, but it, it has gone incredibly well. We had tremendous experts. We've had people uh, say that they did nothing wrong. We've had the leading accounting experts say that there was absolutely nothing wrong and that the complaint lacks merit. Deutsche Bank came out and said the Trump organization was the big whale that they always wanted, and they were paid loans early. Um, they paid loans on time. They were never in default. This is one big, giant hoax, and it's been a waste of almost 11 weeks, but we're almost there. We wrapped up, um, rested our case. They rested their case, so we, uh, you know, we'll just be waiting. We should get a decision after closing arguments sometime late January, probably. Now, is there currently, it's very hard to keep track of this, is there currently a gag order in place regarding what you and the president can and cannot say about this case? Yes. There is, um, you know, and the constitutionality of that is tremendously violative, tremendously scary for our country, I think, um, to gag attorneys in the courtroom and out of the courtroom, uh, let alone, you know, leading candidates, really new low for our country, frankly. So, um, you know, we're going to be fighting that as well and, and moving on up and doing what we need to do in that regard. Well, let me say what you can't say, which is I read your cross-examination of Michael Cohen, 
which was nothing less than brilliant, I would say devastating. Now, Michael Cohen is someone that I have, unfortunately for me, known for many years. Uh, he's lied about me under oath before the U.S. Congress. He's lied about me under oath in front of grand juries. Uh, this is what the man does. Uh, he's a liar. I think you decimated him. Uh, and for the state, either in this case or in the, in the uh, other New York case brought by Alvin Bragg to, uh, to rely on Michael Cohen, a, a convicted liar, uh, as a witness seems to me to be a, well, let's say, shall we say, a very thin read. And then yesterday we read that his lawyers applied for essentially early release from his supervised uh, status uh, as, a, you know, as a convict, where he's uh, out of prison, but he's still on supervised release. And his lawyers actually cited in their argument why he should be released early three cases that actually don't even exist. <laughs> where, they use AI, they think. They use ChatGPT. Could you imagine? So they think that they use ChatGPT or AI and had one of these letters drawn, and the judge has now ordered that they show proof, A, of who was involved in drafting the letter, if Michael Cohen was involved in drafting the letter as well, and why there is absolutely no case law, and the cases are fake. And it's really I'm really looking to see if they have anything else they come up with, but I'd be willing to bet everything that... Uh, he had something to do with that, and it's really ridiculous. Uh, it is. We're having a little trouble with your phone connection. I know you have been good enough to call us in between flights uh, as you are connecting. So we, we appreciate that, and we'll, we'll roll with it. Uh, the uh, This recent decision where President Trump uh, argued uh, in front of uh, in D.C., in front of Judge Chutkin, uh, that any act that he performed on January 6th was in his role as President of the United States, and therefore he is entitled uh, to immunity, uh, was rejected by Judge Chutkin. The President, uh, Chuck Ken, pardon me, uh, the President was prepared to, I guess, did appeal that to the Circuit Court of Appeals, but now uh, Special Counsel Jack Smith uh, has kind of leapfrogged the the appeals court, taking it directly to the to the U.S. Supreme Court, where it probably would have ended up anyway. Because I don't think, having been through the appeals court in D.C. specifically regarding the gag order on me, wasn't optimistic that the president would have gotten a fair or favorable decision there. Uh, but uh, I'm told I'm not a lawyer, as you know that generally speaking, the courts don't like this. The Supreme Court doesn't like this. They like to hear things that have gone through the process. Were you surprised by the court's decision? <laughs> no, I think, you know, there's a stay now, and the judge had to respect that there's a stay in place now pending this decision. Um, the Supreme Court, no, usually you would have to show some sense of urgency. And as we know, Jack Smith's whole motto with the radical left basically is, oh, let's rush this before election. That's our urgency. Um, you know, I was actually, Roger, this morning in the Second Circuit in New York, a court of appeals, arguing against Michael Cohen's team. Uh, we beat him in a case last year, and he appealed it. And I was arguing this exact issue, presidential immunity and, and the scope of it and the importance of a president being able to speak, being able to make decisions, 
and having those immunities in place, no matter who the sitting president is, so that they can do their job effectively. And, um, you know, it's a very important argument. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what they do. But it has stayed the January 6th case, and it's not going to proceed until uh, it is heard. So we'll see what happens there. We'll see yeah. what happens there. But I still have faith in the Supreme Court somehow. I still do. <laughs> uh, well, it's interesting because, of course, uh, they continue to cite the United States versus Richard Nixon, uh, in which the president, Nixon, argued that his presidential immunity uh, meant that he did not have to turn over the tapes. That case was wrongly decided. The Supreme Court, because anti-Nixon hysteria in the country, threw out 200 years of rulings uh, regarding the president and executive uh, uh, privilege, uh, so that standard is a, a fake standard. It may be the it may be the standard based on law, but um, there was no internet in those days, and there was a hysteria in the country. Uh, I believe, just my opinion, that case was wrongly decided. But uh, the greater significance here uh, is that even the Washington Post, perhaps the worst newspaper in the country when it comes to bias and propaganda, even they recognize that what's really upsetting Jack Smith is the the fact that this has knocked him off his timetable. In other words, they are desperate to bring the president just prior to Super Tuesday, the greatest single contest for delegates uh, to the Republican National Convention who will nominate our candidate for president. Uh, and it now appears to me, regardless of what the Supreme Court decides, ultimately, uh, that that timetable has been disrupted. So I guess I would say this week has been a good week, no? It was a good week. I think it was a good week. And and like I said, I do have faith in the Supreme Court. They have to be the arbiter. They have to step in and protect, you know, the demise of our judicial system. That's who has to do it. Um, you know, we have separation of powers. We have judicial branch, and they are the head. So I think it was a good week for President I think it was a good week for the Constitution, <laughs> and I hope that, you know, we persist at this rate. Um, you know, it's unfortunate that you have these AGs and DAs that are motivated by politics and trying to interfere with an election. That's really not what you're supposed to do, and hopefully, you know, law will and order will take over. I, I hope so, because I haven't seen it for the past year, to be honest. Uh, as you know, there is no current special counsel law in place, the law that did exist has expired. Uh, there was an argument that was brought unsuccessfully against Robert Mueller when he was designated as a special counsel that uh, he was never, he wasn't a U.S. attorney. Uh, he was never, his appointment was never approved by the Congress uh, and therefore his appointment was illegitimate. That was rejected by the courts in D.C. Uh, those same uh, facts would pertain to Jack Smith. Has there been any thought to bringing that action, not in D.C., but bringing that action potentially in Florida? Because I think the argument has merit. I'm not sure that Jack Smith's appointment uh, passes legal muster. Yeah, um, I can obviously get into privileged communications. I can tell you that there is definitely a strong legal team with me um, thinking of every single 
angle and uh, issue, and we are on top of it. And, and that's all I'll say on that. So uh, I, I appreciate that. We definitely that. are fighting for the country as a whole, and, and that is something we're considering. Yeah, I appreciate that there are certain matters that you are, uh, because of the privilege, not able to discuss. Of course. We, we certainly respect that. Uh, I'd like you, uh, if you would, for a moment to focus on Donald J. Trump, the man, because people get an impression of him from his public appearances. And he, look, he's always entertaining. Uh, he, he's, he understands which most professional politicians. By the way, I don't consider him a politician. I consider him a political leader. There's a big difference. Donald Trump will never right. be a politician. But, but people just have no idea what he's really like. Uh, they, they don't understand how funny he can be, how even, yeah. how even killed he can be, how relaxed he can be in a crisis like this, uh, how generous he can be, uh, how, how, I've never seen anybody at his height of power and prominence who cares more about little people. Yeah, that's so true. Tell us about the Donald Trump you know, that you've seen. Yeah, I'm very lucky, honestly. I I knew the president, obviously, prior. Um, He, you know, there's there's two things. There's the client, and then there's the man, and there's the president, right? So so for me, um, the client and the president are one thing. And then there's Donald Trump. And he is such, I mean, when I tell you, kind to everyone, every staff member, is the guy that waters the plants to, you know, the military, to whoever is around him, people that just want a picture. We have been in situations where flights have been delayed, canceled, and it's 3 o'clock in the morning, and we're in some random airport, and he will make sure that he shakes everyone's hand, takes a picture with them, and has not lost sight of the excitement that people have when they see him. And he's been very famous. Um, arguably the most famous person in the planet uh, for the past, uh, I don't even, before he was president, he was famous, you know. So he's humble, he's kind, and he is funny. That's the truth, and he loves his music. So if you get to see that side of him that you and I have seen, Roger, I think it almost, uh, it's very endearing and it's very kind. And the anger that we see sometimes come out, he's under siege. So, you know, if somebody's attacking your kids, if somebody's attacking your wife, your family, the country you love, you get angry because you care. So, you know, that's my that's that's the person I know. Um, He's very passionate about this country. There is no personal gain for him uh, in this political world. If anything, it's really been quite disturbing for him and his family. But he's passionate about the country. So. You know, he 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 embody he really embodies America, but more importantly, is he emboldens the people around him. You know, I've I've become who I am because he pushes and he supports you and makes you feel strong, and and it's a it's a real gift. Honestly, it's an honor. I tell you where I find a difference. Look, I've worked for four presidents. Uh, the thing about Trump is, he is so completely his own man. In other words, he's not handled, he's not managed, he's not yeah. scripted. He's not fed talking points. Uh, <laughs> well, we all know he can't script him. <laughs> and, and, no, he, he, but he's genuine. 
he's genuine. Yeah. He's authentic. I think that's why people like him because I think they it's look at all these other politicians and they know that, wow, what that guy is saying, that was probably written by some 28-year-old staff member. Uh, right. Trump, Trump right. very much marches to his own drummer. If I had a dollar for every single person who knows that I've known him for 45 years and says, you know, if he would... If he would just stop posting stuff on social media, no, that's right. that's never ever going to happen ever. Uh, no, he cannot be controlled. I don't. I don't think that you want him controlled. I think that part of why people felt safe in this country when he was in charge is because he was in charge. You know, and and that's the truth. He listens. Now, don't get me wrong. He listens. He does listen, and he takes in any advisor's advice, he listens to those people. Um, and he ultimately will make decisions, educated decisions, based on advisors and everyone. But And he's surrounded by a lot of amazing people. Um, but he's very well-read, he's, he's very well-versed, and he's very kind. And, and he definitely doesn't make decisions to hurt other people. He, he truly does have the country's best interest at heart. There's no question that being president of the United States is literally cost him billions of dollars. Before he got into politics, he was universally loved, universally loved across the board. Okay. Rich people, poor people, black people, white people, young people, old people, urban people, rural people. Everybody loved Donald Trump. Look how many movies he's been in. Look how many rap yeah. songs he's been lionized in. Uh, he's not doing this because it's some power trip. He's not doing it no. because because he needs the prominence. He's the probably the most famous person in the world. He's not doing it because he needed a big fancy mansion. I'm sorry, I've been in the White House and I've been in Marlago. Uh, the White House was built in the 1700s and it, it's beautiful. Uh, I respect it, but it's it's antiquated. Whereas Marlago is well, first of all, it's worth a heck of a lot than 18 million dollars. But it, it's <laughs> it, it's the most opulent. Uh, incredibly uh, historic uh, place you can imagine on earth. And I walked through it with him when he was considering buying it after it had been for 15 years. Uh, there was, the government owned it, Meriwether Post, uh, the heiress to the Post serial fortune, uh, died and she willed it to the U.S. government. The government didn't know what to do with it. President Nixon considered using it as a, as a Southern White House, but then he decided that it was too fancy, too rich, wouldn't play well to his political base. So they basically boarded the place up. Uh, I walked through him with it when he was considering on bidding uh, with the federal government to buy it from them. Uh, it had a lot of water damage. Uh, it, it was dusty. Uh, uh, and I kind of said, wow, this is like the Adams family house. I mean, this is like a haunted house. And he looked at it and he said, no, no, you don't understand. This could really be magnificent again. And then he painstakingly uh, recreated uh, Marlago as the original, bringing in artisans from Italy, from Spain, people to paint tile, people to do specific things. Uh, it's one of the most magnificent places on earth. He certainly didn't run for president because he needed Air Force One because Trump Force One, uh, that's really traveling in style, I must tell you. So he, yeah. he, he's not in this for any of the accoutrements of being president. He's not f uh, in it for the, for, the, uh, for the grandiosity. This guy really loves the American people, uh, and he hates what was happening to the country, which is why he ran the first time. Look, I tried to get him run in 1988. 
I tried to get him to run in 2000. I tried to get him to run in 2012. By 2016, he'd had enough. He had enough of seeing the country losing. He he had, he had had enough of the incompetence running our government. Uh, I think you make an excellent point. The great personal cost to Donald Trump has been astronomical. And honestly, right now, if he would just quit the race for president and go away, I think they'd leave him alone. The reason they're trying to prosecute him is because he's leading in the polls, because he is poised for the greatest political comeback in American political history. It's true. It's true. Well said. I can't say it better than that. It's true. So uh, going back to New York, if we could for a moment, the other New York case, the so-called business records case uh, brought by Alvin Bragg, which to me should be a civil case. What is the status of that and when when will that go to trial? Look, I mean, you talked about my cross-examination on the attorney general case of Michael Cohen, and I got him to admit um, on the record that he perjured himself twice. New perjury charges, right? So he perjures himself. This is a star witness for the criminal case as well as for Letitia James. They have to be really considering what they're doing. And after seeing Letitia, uh, you know, the press, even CNN today said this is the most bogus case, Letitia James. Uh, I couldn't believe it. It was CNN. Uh, you know, I hope Alvin Bragg's looking at that and considering that before they try and bring a trial. Um, you know, they're still in discovery, not discovery per se, but they're in the beginning steps of a criminal case. And we'll see what happens there. But don't forget, it's another Michael Cohen special. He paraded around and, you know, their cases are crumbling because their star witness crumbled. So we'll see. I don't think that one, uh, you know, will go very far if Alvin's watching what happened with Letitia James. Yeah, it's really quite extraordinary. Uh, you probably can't say this, so I will. The judge in that case made a $15 contribution to Joe Biden's campaign for election. To me, that means the judge has a bias and should step aside. It doesn't matter if it's $15 or $50 or $500 or $5,000. It violates the canon of ethics. It's against the rules for the judge to donate. He did it anyway. There was a legitimate motion to him to recuse himself, and he refuses. Uh, how can any... That's the problem. That's the problem. The judges are doing They have to recuse themselves. So you're actually applying to the judge themselves, saying, please get off this case. You have a bias. And they don't want to get off the case. They're high profile, especially these judges that are at the end of their tenure. They want to go be mediator somewhere. They like the publicity. We've seen it in the trial I just did. And it, uh, it, it's really ruining our, our credit, our credit of the judicial system and the robe. And it's a shame. Uh, I'm kind of interested, uh, in how this is, has, has impacted you personally. I mean, you had a thriving legal practice. Now you have arguably the most important client in the country. Uh, the hours you put in, uh, I mean, I watch you very carefully, and you know I'm a fan. Uh, how, how has this impacted your personal life? You know, I'm really lucky that my children um, have been fortunate enough to get to know the president, and he is so kind to them and my husband and my family. And because of that, I think the tolerance level in my home is very high, but I work all the time. I work all the time. I, I do press. I go to trial. 
and then I do prime time usually and go to bed and sometime in between try and see my children who are, you know, relatively young. Um, but I have to say that my entire family and my entire support system all are so petrified of what's going on in the country that they are gracious to me. They all help when I need an extra hand. And uh, I'm very, I'm just very lucky. I feel really, Roger, uh, blessed. You've seen me. You know, I'm still smile. I, I have a great time. I never complain. I really feel honored to be in this position. And, um, you know, we take it a day at a time. But, um, you know, when he's 76 years old and he has more energy than me, it just reminds me, <laughs> I don't, you know, to keep fighting. So I, I love it. Yes, it has changed my life completely, but in a good way. And I, and I love it. I really do. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's really amazing uh, uh, his attitude. I mean, I, I saw him about a week ago, uh, and uh, look, a lesser man would have would have folded. I mean, uh, they wrote at the end of Watergate. I think this is untrue, but Woodward and Bernstein wrote that Nixon would get drunk at night and was walking around the White House talking to the portraits of former presidents. By the way, I had no source on that. Probably didn't really happen. The thing about Trump is under all this pressure, uh, he's resilient. Uh, he's determined. Yeah. He's extraordinarily confident. Uh, it's amazing how confident he remains. He's upbeat. Uh, the hours he puts in, you know, I mean, I I'm younger than he is by six years. But, uh, you know, as you know, sometimes he'll call you at one thirty in the morning and ask you what you're doing. Uh, sleeping, yeah. uh, sleeping, sir. Uh, he's, he's always been that way, by the way. He never, ever required a lot of, of, of sleep. And, right. and, and he's always working. When he's on the golf course, he's still thinking. When, when he's dining, he's still thinking. When he's watching That's TV, right. uh, or, 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 or when he's, when he's, as well as his office hours, he's always working. We used to have this ritual in which he would fly every Friday afternoon from New York to Palm Beach to spend the weekend of the winters at Mar-a-Lago, and then he would fly back Sunday night. And I would often hitch a ride, because I then lived in Miami, uh, back and forth. And I would say to him, you know, why don't we fly back Monday morning? Now, he was already a billionaire many times over. Why don't we fly back uh, Monday morning? He said, no. We can't do that. I said, why not? So I got to be at my desk at seven o'clock Monday morning. I mean, that is the Donald Trump work ethic. True. Uh, True. Uh, he, he's never been in a situation in which, uh, you know, he had to do it. But he, his work ethic is extraordinary. I knew both his parents. They were vital into their 90s. Donald Trump's father, Fred, went to the office uh, until the day he, before he died, he was in the office. Uh, so right. he's, he's of extraordinarily hardy stock. Uh, look, I think you're extraordinarily fortunate to represent him. But at the same time, Man. I think you have done an extraordinary job on his behalf. I thank God every day uh, for the good services of Alina Haba. Oh, thank you, Roger. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. Unfortunately, we are out of time. Uh, I want to thank Alina Haba, president for, uh, a lawyer for President Donald J. Trump, for joining us right now on the Roger, Roger Stone Show. God bless you and Godspeed. This is the Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. A man who's gone through hell. 
but he's kept going and he's smart and he's strong and people love him. Not everybody, but people love him and respect him. Roger Stone. Now, here's Roger Stone. Welcome back. This is Roger Stone, and this is the Roger Stone Show at 77 WABC Radio. We are the crown jewel of AM radio. Joining me today is a man who needs no introduction, Tucker Carlson. Uh, in the interest of full disclosure, Tucker Carlson and I have been friends for over 30 years. He wrote the introduction to my book, Stone's Rules, had a star turn in the Netflix documentary, Get Me, Roger Stone, uh, and was perhaps the most articulate advocate for justice in my case when Robert Mueller de decided to try to frame me for Russian collusion that never actually existed. Tucker Carlson, welcome to The Roger Stone Show. Oh, it's an honor to be here. And hearing that, the intro with Trump's voice just brings me back to one of the pivotal moments in my life, which was watching the raid on your house in Florida. And that's when I realized, wow, this is not the country I thought it was. And I was born here and my kids live here. I'm going to live here till I die. And how do we, I mean, how, how do you even live in a place that would do something like that to an innocent man? So that, I mean, I, I feel like your experience, horrifying as it was, and you did go through hell, um, was such an amazingly instructive event for the rest of us. So thank you for enduring that. Well, the, the great irony, of course, is that a full year after my full and unconditional pardon, which you publicly recommended numerous times, Robert Mueller was forced by a federal judge to publish the last long-remaining redacted sections of his report, in which he just admits we never had any evidence that Roger Stone was involved in Russian collusion, WikiLeaks collaboration, or for that matter, any other crime. So they... They ruined my life or attempted to solely to pressure me to testify falsely against Donald Trump, which I refuse to do. And I have no regrets. Uh, Tucker, you've uh, worked at Fox, CNN, NBC. Uh, until recently, you had what I would argue was the most influential program uh, on cable news uh, network. Uh, you have now gone to the new media, as it were. Uh, with your own uh, Twitter, now X-based show. The numbers speak for themselves. I mean, you are killing it in terms of just the number of viewers. Does this, does this herald the end of the old media? Well, I, I mean, I don't think that I have anything to do with the end of the old media, but, but yes, they're dying. I see the numbers very often, but someone listened to me yesterday. The decline in viewership and linear television is just precipitous. It's off a cliff. and But you knew that was going to happen. I mean, partly because the technology has changed, and it's just easier and cheaper to watch your stuff streaming. Um, but I would say more to the point, because people will pay for things that have value. But if they understand, and I think they most now do, that what you're hearing is not true, it's not honest, it's part of a propaganda effort to change your mind on something or make you more obedient in the face of your own destruction, which is really what it is, they don't want anything to do with it. So, I mean, people made fun of bloggers and streamers and podcasters five years ago when I worked in television, and now it's very obvious that independent voices, independent media are the media. They're the only media that people listen to. Do people take 
you know, Joe Rogan or the Today Show more seriously. Well, it's not even close. Rogan has an audience that dwarfs the Today Show. I mean, it's all sort of happened incrementally, so you don't pause, or I haven't paused as someone who's been in the media my whole life, to appreciate how momentous the change is. But they're done. NBC News won't exist in five years. I mean, it won't. I mean, there's no justification for it. It's not a, it's not a workable business. And they're not doing anything worth doing. I mean, they're just, it's a prostate health vehicle for the pharma companies. That's all it is. And people know that. Yeah, it's it's boring, but more importantly, it's discredited. I think 2016 is really the beginning. People prior to that distrusted big government. They distrusted most institutions. They certainly distrusted both major political parties. But I think that is the beginning of them really having a deep distrust of big media. They finally figured out that big media was just not telling them the truth, that they have a that they have a, a, a desired narrative that they want to push on you. Last night uh, on MSNBC, Ari Melber, one of my favorite people, uh, actually had a piece in which he said that Jack Smith, the special counsel, has somehow accessed Donald Trump's cell phone and was able to see his cell phone traffic on January 6th uh, and that uh, Trump spoke to one person outside his staff and that person must obviously be Roger Stone. <laughs> which is categorically false. Just no evidence to support that crazy supposition yes. whatsoever. But they put that on TV like it's real. And unfortunately, some people yeah. will watch that and, and believe it. It's uh, it, it's but, bizarre. But, but a subset of a subset of a subset. I mean, a tiny number of people are watching Ari Melber, someone whose name, thankfully, I haven't thought of in seven months because he's irrelevant to the conversation into the future. I mean, the interesting thing is, I think you're so right about 2016 changing everything, but what's wild is how much I missed as it was happening. And you sort of always do. It's hard to know you're living it. I mean, we, you know, we say that the, you know, fall of Rome took place in the mid fifth century and we've got an exact date and everything. And I always wonder if you lived in Rome in the fifth century, you know, in 460, would you know that Rome was falling? You might not know, actually. It's only in retrospect that we see things clearly but i think it's very obvious if you just pause for a second and have a quiet moment we are in a pivot point in history like a, an actual one and the period we're living in will be written about assuming there are still people to write it extensively as the time when everything changed and the post-war liberal democracy project failed and it was replaced by something else and it's up to all of us to do our best to make sure that whatever replaces what we have now and it will be replaced is something humane that we can live with. I mean, because it's pretty clear that, you know, there are people who want to turn this into a place you wouldn't want to live. I mean, at all. Well, it's interesting now that uh, that Elon Musk, who I think is a, a great hero. I mean, I'm, I'm an admirer. I always liked his swagger to begin with. But at great cost to himself, he really has struck a blow for free speech. Uh, and therefore, he's become the number one enemy of the established order. Uh, and I thought the space uh, that he did the other night was really, really terrific uh, with Alex Jones uh, uh, and others. Uh, but uh, you recently launched the Tucker Carlson Network this past week. Tell us uh, what that's about. Well, I mean, I, you know, left my my old job in April and I did have a couple of weeks to think about, you know, what should I do next? I was 53. I mean, I'm, you know, I don't know. I have a lot of interest, very passionate interest. But then I thought, 
I should keep doing what I'm doing because I think the moment demands it. I'm not indispensable, not even close, but I think I should add my voice to the chorus of people who are trying to tell the truth, trying to be honest. And so we started a new news organization called Tucker Carlson Network, which is um, uh, which is streaming. It's online. A lot of the material will run in part on X because we believe in that platform, the last big free speech platform. But there's a subscription model that we think is essential. If you rely on advertising alone, and I've lived this, for decades, and you try to tell the truth about forbidden topics, and you should, it's morally incumbent on you to do that, you're going to face extinction. I mean, again, I've lived this a lot. And so you need another revenue model if you're going to hire people and try and do real news coverage. And we have 20 employees now. We'll have a lot more than that next year. But you need a way to protect yourself from media matters and you know, Sleeping Giants and all the rest of the Soros-funded censorship organizations, Southern Poverty Law Center. I mean, these, you know, these organizations exist to protect power, to get you to shut up and stop criticizing power. And they're very effective. They're very evil, of course, but they're very effective. And so, you know, you need a, you need a way to, to get out, you know, to protect yourself from them. And the subscription model is the only way. Uh, I saw that you recently uh, went to a UFC fight in Madison Square Garden uh, with President Donald Trump. I went to a UFC fight with him in Las Vegas uh, several weeks prior. What did you think of that experience? Well, I thought it was unbelievable. I mean, I'll just be honest, embarrassing as this is, we don't have a TV. So, you know, I I didn't. I love Dana White, who runs it, who is a friend of mine and and. Also from Maine, by the way, I should say, a plug for the state of Maine. But uh, just a really great guy and someone I admire. But I'd never been to a fight because I don't travel very much. So I went kind of at the last minute. Trump was there, Kid Rock, who I love. And it, the whole thing just blew my mind. And I'm pretty anti-violence, to be honest with you. So I was like, I don't know why I like this or not. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And it is, by the way, the single most violent thing I've ever seen in peacetime. I mean, it really is. But there's something honorable and pure about it because there's no there's kind of no affirmative action in the blood sports you know you can either do it or you can't i mean it's purely on the merits and there's again there's something wonderful about that it's real in a world where almost nothing else is you know what i really liked about it there were no vegans in the crowd uh there were no there were there were no there were there were no pacifists in the crowd People were eating snacks, but there was no tofu. I assure you, uh, I've never seen so no, much no, testosterone in, in in one hall. <laughs> I was, yeah, I thought the same thing. This is a protein-heavy crowd. I sat actually sat next to by accident Dan Bongino, who is just absolutely a savage. I mean, Dan Bongino looks like he would you know eat you if you annoyed him. I like Dan. I'm not criticizing him, but uh, he didn't even stand out. I mean, it's <laughs> like. No, it's it's very masculine in a good way, in a in an honest way, not in a fake way at all. And I know some of the fighters. Bryce Mitchell is one of my absolute favorite people, and um, from Arkansas, who's one of their I think one of their great fighters. And but they're all the same. They're all very humble because guys like that who've proved themselves in public have nothing else to prove. They don't need to BS you with I'm the toughest guy. You know, you can assess how tough they are. You're watching it, and so they're very very. Like restrained, gentle people in person, all of them. Yeah, Jorge Masvidal is a good friend of mine. He's, of course, from Miami nearby. 
but I have to admit, there were many times when I just had to look away. I couldn't, I, I just couldn't, particularly with the women fight, uh, I just couldn't uh, take the brutality. It was I'm more, not for that. I'm not, I should say that. I didn't watch, I don't think women should be hitting each other. I don't think they should be on the front lines of our military. I think the whole point of civilization is protect women because you love women. And you, you, once they start fighting your wars or beating each other up for money, for your entertainment, I think you degrade yourself. So that's one area where I strongly disagree with Dana White, who, as I said, I genuinely admire. But I don't I think it degrades all of us to pit women against each other. Women in violence. Women should not be violent. I think it's wrong. And I don't care if I'm betraying the core tenets of feminism. I think it's gross. And I didn't watch. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Couldn't agree more. So there's been, as you're well aware, uh, speculation uh, about a Donald Trump, Tucker Carlson presidential, vice presidential ticket. I realize you're probably tired of answering uh, vice presidential questions, but frankly, it's all anyone wants to hear about. So let me ask it in a slightly different way. What country are you planning to officially visit when you become vice president? <laughs> I'm going right to Hungary. Um, to see Viktor Orban, who is one of the rare great leaders in the world and a very moderate, sensible person who cares about his own country, which is highly unusual at this stage in history. Um, I mean, look, the, the bottom line in this story is that I have no control over it, zero. And the last thing I would ever do is try and jockey for anything. I'm just not a jockeyer. I didn't jockey in my last job or any job. I just don't believe in that. And so I have no control, and if Trump thinks that's the right thing, then I'll think about it. And um, I don't know I'd be very good at it. I've never done anything like that before. I don't have some of the relative, relevant skills, I don't think. But it's sort of like the weather. It's like something I don't worry about because it's not up to me. Yeah, President Nixon once told me you don't run for vice president, but you can position yourself. I see no evidence whatsoever that you're doing that. Uh, you know, but you're not prepared to issue a Sherman-esque statement here today. So hope springs eternal. I think it would be interesting, to say the least, and perhaps very powerful. Well, I, I, I mean, I'm flattered to that extent. And um, but I mean, I really do. Th I don't know. I have no idea when Trump plans to make this decision. But I know for a fact it'll be a different country by the time he does. So the calculation will be different. I mean, if I look at my views 20 years ago, I went to Iraq 20 years ago today on December 13th, 2020, 2003, changed my life forever. And I, if I think about what my views were on the flight to Kuwait about the world, they're completely different from the views I have today, completely different because the world is completely different. So the one thing I've learned in my long and varied life is don't, you know, don't imagine the future too too precisely because you can't it's a fool's errand like do your job today and god's in control and you know i'm not folks if you're just tuning in this is the roger stone show on 77 wabc radio uh and we are interviewing tucker carlson uh and very grateful to have him uh, on the show uh tucker you know that i have long been a proponent for the full legalization of cannabis. I happen to believe it has great medicinal value, uh, most importantly. 
Uh, Israel uses it for PTSD and its soldiers. I think it is greatly uh, preferable to opioids, which I think is the number one drug problem in the country, other than perhaps fentanyl. Uh, you're uh, against legalization, although generally speaking, you're uh, a libertarian. Tell us uh, your, the thinking behind your current stance. Well, it's not so much I'm against legalization. I'm against getting loaded. I'm for sobriety, and that's not a position I was born with. That's a position I earned. I've been sober for 21 years. And I just think there's a lot of value in facing life directly. I don't think it's easy. Um, and I've been addicted to all kinds of things over the course of my life. I've done a lot of drugs. I smoked weed every day for years, many years. And, of course, I had a drinking problem. So I, I kind of have done a lot of longitudinal research on and I think it's just good to encourage people, particularly men, to just live clear-headedly and soberly. Um, and I have to say, I don't see, while I'm totally opposed to hassling people for smoking weed, um, of course, I've always had that view, and I always will have that view. If someone's smoking weed in his living room, why are you bothering it? We've got real problems. Leave him alone. But encouraging people to smoke weed in public and encouraging kids to use it hasn't made the country better. I don't notice that. I don't see any measure by which... America has become a better country or its people have become happier by encouraging cannabis use. I mean, maybe I'm missing the numbers, but the suicide rate, the rate of mental illness has skyrocketed. Everyone seems a little touched at this point. That's not just the fault of weed. I'm not exactly sure what it is. I personally think it's probably spiritual, but but I'm just saying I don't notice improvement. We've had a huge change. When I was a kid, I remember you know smoking weed at the beach in California where I grew up and you'd hide when the Rangers came by. Now, you know, you share a joint with them. Okay, huge change. Has the country gotten better? No. Have the people become more impressive? Hardly. Much less impressive, much less happy, much less strong, much more dependent. Again, I'm not blaming weed, but I'm just saying, like, if it's a good thing, where are the signs that it's a good thing? And I don't see a single one of them. Uh, I know you once had a nicotine addiction. Uh, most of the time when I see you, you are chewing on a nicorette. Uh, I admire that you have broken it. I find the whole concept broken of it. broken it. I've Bro got it in right now. I haven't broken it. I'm I'm more slavishly dependent on nicotine than I've ever been, and you know I'm not proud of that. I guess I I don't see a downside, but maybe there is one. Just like you you like weed and don't see a downside. Yeah, it's you been know, well. I mean, everyone has. Different yeah. perspectives. Yeah, actually, my view on weed is, is I gotten very similar to yours. I'm uh, in the sense that I, I don't do it anymore. I did a lot of it at one time, uh, but I do think that it should certainly be decriminalized. Uh, I guess what I meant to say is I'm glad to see that you're not still smoking cigarettes. That's what I meant. No, but you know, I tried to smoke one this summer. Somebody sent me a bunch of cigarettes, a new cigarette brand, and I thought, I mean, I smoked until I was 45. You know, so. I have a lot of experience with cigarettes, and uh, so I was like, "I'm going to smoke one," and I didn't enjoy it. I was kind of shocked. I've been off, I've been off them for nine years, and I thought I would enjoy it, but I really didn't. So I think the smoking phase of my life is over for good. What do you What do you make of these efforts in the UK effectively banning cigarettes for all future generations? What do I think of that? I think it's yes. grotesque. I think it's grotesque. I mean. I wonder also why why the monomania about cigarettes. I mean, yeah, they're not good for you, but there's no health care savings in banning smoking, and there's health care costs, actually. So there's no 
economic justification for banning cigarettes, but they're obsessed with banning cigarettes. So, like, why? Well, maybe there's something about cigarettes that makes them mad that has nothing to do with public health. Maybe it's a sign of autonomy and masculinity. Maybe it raises your testosterone levels, comma, which it does. And maybe that's the real problem. Maybe they hate working-class men. Maybe they hate working-class whites. Oh, yeah, that's who smokes. So, you know, I, I think you should... Poor people have very few pleasures in this country, very few, fewer than ever. They're more in debt. They're more unhealthy. They're more despised than they've ever been. This is a revolution aimed downward at ordinary people, working people. And if they like to smoke cigarettes, maybe you should just back off and let them, actually. Maybe you should stop hectoring them and lecturing them. You know, and it's always like some rich lady in her 50s who's totally brain dead from SSRIs and benzodiazepines who's like lecturing the working class about smoking their cigarettes. And, and maybe she should just shut up and go away. That's my feeling. Very, very good. Very, very good point. Let me ask you a question that I asked President Donald Trump on this show. It was my very first show. Do you believe, and I think you do, that the government absolutely has proof uh, of UFOs? Uh, and why aren't they telling us about it? Well, I know that that's true. It's not that I believe it. It's I, I have confirmed it. And um, why? I mean, there are two reasons in my opinion, and I, I think this I'm safe to say this conclusive, that they're not releasing it. And by the way, that they're trying very hard not to release it. Very, very hard. I could bore you for an hour, but there's a there's a frantic effort underway right now in the Congress to not follow the UAP Disclosure Act that they passed earlier this year. They're trying to keep this stuff hidden. Why? The most obvious answer is because the information reveals their crimes. I mean, the US government has had contact with these entities for over 80 years. And so a lot has happened in that time in secret, and they don't want the public to know because it would reveal that they've done criminal things, which they have. And the second reason, if I'm being honest, is that I think the truth about this is upsetting. It's not that we have crashed flying saucers and alien biologics, which is, of course, true. There's, it's more than that, actually. And it is distressing. So, so distressing to me personally that like the things that I believe to be true about this, I would not tell my wife, and I haven't, because what's the point? You know what I mean? And so I, I, I never sympathize with this with classification. I think the government is way too secretive. I don't think it's a real democracy if they hide as much as they do. I still believe that, and I'm always for disclosure. But in this case, I can, I can understand why they're hiding some of this because I think it's very upsetting and very dark. And so that's my view of that. Uh, I uh, watched your epic two-hour interview with Alex Jones. It was so fascinating. I actually prevailed on my wife to listen and watch the whole thing. Uh, make it clear, as you did in the interview, as I do here on this show, I don't agree with Alex Jones on everything. I don't agree with him on many things. I do agree with him on other things. Uh, but I I'm still shocked uh, that on one day, essentially, every single social media platform, all of whom claim they didn't speak to each other, by the way, uh, just outright banned him. He was gone. Facebook, Instagram, Spotify, uh, Hulu, etc., etc., etc. What was interesting about his interview is that you see that he's not just some angry guy pounding the table, although his audience clearly does love that persona. 
but that his beliefs, even if you disagree with them, they're grounded in, in a lot of research, a lot of thought, a lot of reading, a lot of study. Uh, it was really, really impressive. Uh, I commend it to anybody who thinks they know him because they will see a man that they, that they don't know. Uh, but more importantly, that I really believe that interview had the impact of allowing him to return to Twitter, now known as X. And I think just because I'm a free speech absolutist, that's a really good thing. Well, I feel exactly the same way about Alex Jones. And um, I like Alex personally. Um, he's a nice man in a lot of ways. But the reason that I wanted to get him on is because I don't think he's a political analyst or commentator. I think he's a prophetic voice. And I think that's provable. Alex Jones called 9-11 in detail. Alex Jones said in July on tape, so we're not guessing about this, Alex Jones said, I'm worried that planes are going to hit the World Trade Centers and they're going to blame Osama bin Laden. I worked in D.C. then. I had a TV show then. I was pretty connected then. Not one person in my world had even thought of something like that. And Alex Jones said so out loud on cable access television in Austin, Texas. And we can prove that. We're not guessing. So what is that? How could you have called 9-11 in that detail? And I talked to him a lot about it off air. And I'm not sure he knows. But the point is, that's prophetic. No one did that. That's supernatural. No one can do that. That's impossible. And But he did it. So what is that? And I don't know the answer, of course, but he's done that on a number of subjects. Now, Alex Jones is obviously kind of floored and crazy and jumping around and yelling at Brian Stelton all the rest. But that doesn't mean that he's not channeling something real and true and supernatural. And he clearly is. I mean, well, what's the other explanation? So that, that shouldn't shock us because all through history there are documented accounts of people who somehow know things that no one else knows who can foretell the future often you know not precisely but but clearly they have insight that others don't have and often they're kind of crazy people i mean there's not a prophet in the old testament you want to have dinner with i I like having dinner with alex jones i really like him personally but even if i didn't i would recognize something very unusual is coming out of alex jones and so why would anyone want to silence that? He's not calling for violence. He's not a cruel person. And he has a, a, a constitutional right to say what he thinks. So why did they ban him? Well, they banned him precisely because he was telling the truth, of course. And, and that should bother all of us. And we should listen carefully to what Alex Jones says, because do you know anyone else who called 9-11? No, you don't, because no one else did, just him. And I just think that that makes him an amazing person. Well, in the interview, I thought he handled, he answered that question very effectively. He pointed to multiple think tank, uh, and other government studies that he had read exhaustively. Uh, and as he put it, it's all there. All you gotta do is read it. If you read these things, maybe he's the only one who read them, but it, it was all there. This seems to be the case in all of the things. Look, he, he understands, uh, something again that Nixon used to say, which in politics, which is the same as, let's just say, uh, 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 the Internet or cable. The only thing worse than being wrong is being boring. And Alex Jones is never boring. But uh, having hung out with him, having spent time with him, the Alex Jones you see uh, on his show, the Alex Jones you see in your interview, that is the real Alex Jones. There's, he, he doesn't have a public persona and a private persona. I mean, he is interesting he is manic he is committed he is devout 
Uh, he is a believer. I mean, he's all those things. He's got some ideas that I really, really strongly disagree with, but I absolutely believe he has a, a total right to say them. Uh, and, and I'm perplexed by our judicial system, which doesn't seem to agree. Uh, he now, I believe, owes... Uh, in the recent litigation, I think he owes something like $1.3 trillion for things that he said. Things I disagree with, but things he said, I think he has a right to say. Well, for sure. But again, why, why Alex Jones? I mean, he's not, okay. you know, he's never had a platform on a mainstream media source. He is a relatively small audience. He hasn't hurt anybody. Words are not violence, and they're not legally they are not violence we can say that conclusively so why why do they hate him so much why they focus on him and of course it's because you know in the in the vast sea of things that he said are very true things and those the offensive things to the people in charge and i will just say about the 9-11 thing i thought his answer was absurd oh i read the think tank stuff well okay i worked at a couple think tanks i live in dc i know a lot more about dc than alex jones does because i spent 35 years there and i didn't you know, you can I read a lot of things, but to connect those things and to have certainty that they're true and to predict the future in a way that's that precise when nobody else does, that's not a product of your study. That's like, that's a supernatural insight. There's no other way. I just don't, you know what I mean? Like, I, I probably know the people who wrote the papers that he read, but they didn't predict this was going to happen. Nobody did. Only he did. So that tells me... That confirms my view that there's a lot going on that's not explicable in human terms. I mean, clearly, clearly there is. I'm just trying to be rational about it. And um, and so I think Jones, I, I, you know, I have no idea why he's the one through whom these insights are coming. You know, I'm, I don't know. I don't understand it. There's a lot I don't understand, but I know that that's real. Folks, this is the Roger Stone Show, and we are going to take a quick commercial break, and then we'll be right back with Tucker Carlson. Talk Radio 77 WABC. This is the Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. A man who's gone through hell, but he's kept going, and he's smart, and he's strong, and people love him. Not everybody, but people love him and respect him. Roger Stone. Now... Here's Roger Stone. This is Roger Stone. We're back on the Roger Stone Show here at 77 WABC. We are the crown jewel of AM radio, and we're talking to Tucker Carlson. Tucker, according to uh, Fox News, uh, The Daily Wire, uh, WealthDaily.com, Newsmax, and a few others, There was a cyber attack on the United States last week, which they attribute to China's military. Uh, To me, this seems to be an egregious act of war, yet this got almost no coverage whatsoever. Uh, And I'm trying to understand why. Because they make all of our antibiotics. Because they make electrical components that we need to make cars, computers, iPhones, because we can't live without them, because they have total control over our country, not through their military power, but through their economic and manufacturing power. So actually, we can't, we're in the subordinate position with China. And I don't care what the think tank warriors say. I don't care what our generals say, who really are contemptible and stupid. Uh, You know, just look at the facts. 
And, and that's all that matters. When they started to tell me that Ukraine was going to beat Russia, I, w- I rushed right to Wikipedia, my news source, and ch- looked at the populations relatively of the two countries. And I was like, wait, Russia has 100 million more people and much deeper manufacturing capacity. Like, there's no chance Ukraine can win. Like, it's just that simple. It's baked in the cake. If, if you assess a potential war between the United States and China, you know, the country that makes everything is going to win. That's why the Confederacy lost in the Civil War. They were, in a lot of ways, more capable soldiers with better leadership, but they, you know, they didn't have enough plants to make rifles. And it's just kind of that simple. So we can't beat China in a war. We cannot defend Taiwan because we don't make our own antibiotics or our own vitamin C or our own anything anymore, thanks to the private equity class who really should be brought up on charges. Um, but whatever. Um, yeah, that's the answer. There's nothing we can do. So we're not doing anything. Uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who I know is a friend of yours, an acquaintance of mine, says that he just doesn't believe that poses a military threat to the United States. Uh, I vehemently disagree with that. Do you agree with me? Do you agree with him? What's your Did view? China? Does yes. China? I mean, again, I think it's irrelevant. I don't think China needs a military to control the United States. Um, at all, if you if you make the products that the country can't exist without, then you have absolute control, and we can posture all all we want. I'm also not convinced that China is going to invade Taiwan. I think probably it's a wiser move just to control its political structure secretly, which I'm fairly confident they already do. So you know, war is for a country like China, which thinks long term, war is like the least appealing outcome. China doesn't want war with anybody. China just wants control over everybody. It's a commercial country. So to me, the measure will be our trade routes. The, you know, the purpose of the, the real purpose of the U.S. military is to keep the you know, sea lanes open so you can have global trade, particularly oil. And if China decides, well, actually, you know, now the Straits of Malacca are ours and we're, you know, we're kind of controlling the trade that flows through them, then that's, that's, what, it, that's what global control looks like. Right there, and I think that's what they want. Uh, Henry Kissinger, a Secretary of State, lauded by many as a statesman, others by as Satan himself, passed uh, almost two weeks ago now. Your thoughts on Henry Kissinger? I have too many thoughts. I mean, I, I think you know, uh, on balance, Henry Kissinger was a, a net a, a net destructive force to, for the United States for sure. And I think, you know, he lived the kind of life that he's probably going to he's probably answering for right now. Um, so, you know, I think Henry Kissinger is also smart and way less crazy than uh, the neocons. He's certainly a lot more impressive than, say, Toria Newland, the undersecretary of state. I mean, so by that measure, you know, but and the last thing I'll say is I don't believe in attacking people on the day they die, not because I'm defending the people, but because I think we should have reverence for death. And um and so I was kind of, I've never defended Henry Kissinger, but I felt like defending him that day. Uh, President Nixon again told me that the reason he never destroyed the tapes was because he was certain uh, that uh, he needed them as his protection uh, against Henry Kissinger taking credit for all of his foreign policy initiatives after his death. I think that tells Can I ask you. you a question? Of course. Last, last question, but... Um, I've never understood why Nixon, who I admire, like legitimately admire, and I think he was taken out, you know, in a coup. I think all the evidence proves that. But I never understood why someone as smart as Nixon would hire someone like Henry Kissinger. Why would you do that? Henry Kissinger, of course, 
was undermining Nixon the entire time. He's the least trustworthy, most dishonest person you could have at your side. So why would you hire someone like that? Uh, I think that he I think that Nixon admired Kissinger's intellect uh, after Nelson Rockefeller, who was Kissinger's original patron, uh, bombed out of the 1968 presidential contest. Kissinger began sending these brilliant foreign policy memos uh, to Nixon, and Nixon was very impressed. It wasn't until after Nixon hired Kissinger that he learned uh, that Kissinger had been sending the exact same memos to Nixon's opponent, uh, Vice President Hubert Humphrey. Uh, Nixon uh, completely understood Kissinger, but he was uh, he was the architect. Kissinger was the errand boy. It was Nixon who 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 decided to bring China, a, a backwards, broke agrarian country, in out of the cold, them off against the Russians in order to get a strategic arms limitation agreement. There was no way for Nixon and, or Kissinger to know that 30 years later, between the Bushes and the Clintons, we would not only give the Chinese most favored nation trading status. Uh, but we also, in the case of Clinton, would sell them uh, our top military secrets in return for illegal campaign contributions. So China was not the powerhouse, not the danger it is today. No, I, I get it. I get it. But I just don't. I it detracts from my from my respect for Nixon that he would fall for that. I don't respect anyone's intellect at all. I respect their wisdom. I've been I spent my life around super bright people who are morons. Your IQ means nothing. Your cleverness means nothing. All that matters is your wisdom, your ability to make wise decisions that benefit people, your people, your country, your family. And and Kissinger was completely without that. He was utterly transactional, uh, totally deceptive, and always for himself above all. And having people like that, and this is my one big criticism of Trump, having people like that around you will destroy you. You need to run from people like that. And I just don't understand the appeal. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, we don't. And we don't want to mention any names. Mike Pompeo. Uh, okay. Yeah. Unfortunately, we have to leave it there. Tucker Carlson, thank you so much for joining us on The Roger Stone you're, Show. You're the best. Thanks, Roger. You know, there's so many questions I could have asked Tucker Carlson. Uh, when I first met him 30 years ago, uh, he sported as a kind of a trademark a very natty bow tie all the time. At some point, he switched to uh, a four-in-hand, you know, rep-stripe ties. I wanted to ask him why he did that, since the bow tie was pretty much established as his uh, trademark. Uh, also wanted to ask him uh, about his uh, shocking... Uh, but publicly expressed fear uh, that there might be an assassination attempt on President uh, Donald Trump. Uh, but frankly, we just didn't have the time. So I pledge to you we will get him back on the Roger Stone Show to ask those questions and more. In the meantime, we're very grateful to Tucker Carlson for joining us today. Joining me now uh, is Gavin Wax. Gavin Wax is not only uh, an accomplished cook, uh, but he is also the chairman of the New York Young Republican Club. The New York Young Republicans uh, are the oldest, I think largest, uh, and most vibrant and active Young Republican Club in the country. Uh, I'm a former Young Republican National Chairman, serving from 1977 to 1979, 
So I have a very sentimental place in my heart for the YRs. Uh, and Gavin Wax, chairman of the club, joins us now. Thank you, Mr. Stone, and uh, thank you for recognizing my, uh, my Italian culinary uh, background. Uh, I'll make you a carbonara next time you're in town. Uh, you know, I've heard about your carbonara. Somebody who had it told me, and I quote, Marron. So I really can't wait. Uh, so, so the New York Young Republicans uh, have a, a storied history, uh, uh, and uh, they also have a clubhouse, uh, which I hope to get to on my next trip to New York. Tell us about the New York YRs to begin with. Absolutely. Well, the New York Young Republican Club, as you said, is the oldest and largest. Our history goes back formally to 1911 when this current iteration of the club was founded, but predecessor organizations go all the way back to 1856, basically with the founding of the party and bringing Abraham Lincoln to speak at uh, the Cooper Union, which sort of catapulted uh, him into the presidency. Uh, in the 1860 election. So the club has been sort of this storied institution in New York. Uh, many uh, Republican, uh, you know, bigwigs have come through the club over the years. Uh, you know, it used to be much more of a Northeastern, Rockefeller, liberal Republican type of club. It was the club of uh, Thomas Dewey, Governor Dewey, who was the chairman of our board of advisors. It was the club of John Lindsay, who was president of the club in 1952. It was the club of Jacob Javits, Nelson Rockefeller, David Rockefeller, uh, and even Richard Nixon. President Nixon was a alumnus of the club. So many of the biggest names of the Republican Party between, you know, let's say the 1920s to the 1960s had at one point or another passed through the institution. It fell on some hard times starting after Watergate in the 1970s, as many Republican institutions did across the country. And uh, we've sort of led a renaissance, a revitalization of it over the last five years, bringing it back to its former glory. You know, this was a club that used to have 5,000 members. It would host its annual gala at the Waldorf Astoria or the Plaza Hotel. Uh, and I think we've really done a good job bringing it back uh, into that mold as an institution that's sort of charting a new path for the young uh, conservative voices, young Republican voices across the country. And this past Saturday, I think uh, all that hard work was realized when uh, President Donald J. Trump graced us with his presence, not only for a speech, but also for dinner. And uh, we, you know, took the house, we took the, the roof off of uh, Cipriani Wall Street, the largest freestanding ballroom in the city of New York. We had about a thousand plus people there. Uh, we had your favorite or uh, your 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 infamous rather uh, martini, the Nixon martini uh, that you made for us earlier this year. We brought that back as the cocktail of the evening. So it was a great affair. We were sorry we couldn't have you there, but we're certain we're going to have you there next year. Uh, as you know, I had made an antecedent commitment to the Lee County, Florida Republicans to speak at their Christmas picnic. Uh, and, well, all politics is local. Uh, and when you give your word, you give your word. Uh, but I was with you in spirit. Yeah. Let's face it, I love any opportunity to get dressed up in a dinner jacket. So uh, I had my outfit all picked out when I realized I had a conflict in my schedule. I look forward to being with you next year because that's the year we will be celebrating uh, the return of the White House by Amen. Donald J. Trump. So uh, how, how, how did you find the president? How did you find his remarks? I don't know if you had met him previously or whether this was your first time. I watched it uh, later. Uh, I think it was on Real Side uh, Broadcasting. 
He looked like he was having the time of his life. He looked great. I uh, loved his, his uh, tuxedo. He looked to be in great spirits. Uh, you know, we, we had a good time uh, to chat at the table before his speech. And I think he's, uh, he's really sharp. He's a killer. You know, he's observing everything. He's looking around the room. He's taking it all in. You know, he was clearly very cognizant that the whole network pool was behind him. There were cameras everywhere. He was surrounded by a thousand plus people. I mean, the fact that he came in to the middle of this ballroom and just plopped himself down for dinner, you know, it was, it was, it was great to see. It was really kind of man of the people. You know, he wasn't just coming in and coming out. He went in, sat, ate dinner, had some Diet Coke and, uh, you know, he was, he was, he was having a good time. You know, he met every, he shook everyone's hand. Uh, he said hello, a complete gentleman. And, uh, his speech, I think was, uh, was on, was on, his speech was, was electric. Uh, you know, it was one of his best, uh, that I've seen in person. And, uh, you know, he went on for, I think, an hour and a half. We originally only had him budgeted for about 40, 45 minutes. Uh, he read The Snake, which I know he only brings out on rare occasions, but I think he really enjoyed it. I think he liked, uh, being back in New York. I think he enjoyed not having to go down to that horrible building, 100 Center Street, and actually get to dine and, and, uh, go out and experience, you know, the New York that he, once new and once loved, uh, and not the the New York of today, which is this, you know, this uh, this rotting shell of its former self. Um, but I think he really enjoyed uh, the ambiance. I believe it was his first time speaking at Cipriani Wall Street, and uh, I think the venue itself is quite historic, given that uh, Hillary Rodham Clinton gave her infamous remarks about the basket of deplorables off from that very stage 60 days before the. Uh, 2016 election. So it was a uh, it was a great return uh, to that that historic political spot uh, for the president to make his own remarks uh, about you know less than a year out from this 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 election cycle, uh, which I think we both believe he will win uh, in grand fashion. So altogether, the vibes were fantastic. Uh, he had a uh, we had a we had a world class violinist there, uh, a gentleman named Mr. Maga believe it or not, M-A-G-A. Uh, you couldn't find anyone better named uh, for this uh, for this evening. Uh, we flew him in from Hungary, and uh, he's, he's sold out Carnegie Hall before. He's a world-famous violinist, and he, uh, he personally serenaded the president at the table. So I think altogether it was a great evening, one for the history books, and one I think the president and our many, many guests will not forget. Now, you gave out uh, a number of, of awards, which you do on a yearly basis. Uh, I saw that President Trump won the Richard M. Nixon Award, uh, which uh, was very appropriate. They're trying to take Trump out the same way they took Nixon out in a uh, in a silent coup. Uh, new documents recently declassified by the federal government demonstrate the Central Intelligence Agency was well aware of the Watergate break-in. In fact, they infiltrated the Watergate break-in team with eight active CIA uh, informants uh, and operatives, uh, and that story uh, is now finally, thanks to Tucker Carlson and others, uh, people are getting a better perspective on the Trump presidency, Trump uh, and the Nixon presidency, uh, both peacemakers, no new wars under Donald Trump, ending the Vietnam War under President Nixon. Who else uh, received prestigious awards that night? Uh, well, I'll, I'll touch on uh, the Richard M. Nixon Award briefly. I mean, you've been ahead of the curve on this, obviously, for your entire career. President Nixon was a great man. Our club wants to honor him. I saw on your uh, on your ex account, I think it was earlier today or, or yesterday evening, you shared an article talking about how young Republicans are now 
warming up to President Nixon. And I think this is an important first step uh, in doing so, what they did to President Nixon. A lot of the stuff we're seeing today uh, in terms of the tactics being used by the deep state all date back uh, to what they did to President Nixon. But uh, in addition uh, to the Richard M. Nixon Award that we gave to President Trump, also, I believe Mr. N- uh, President Nixon was a pen pal of President Donald J. Trump in the 80s and 70s and predicted that President Trump would uh, eventually ascend to the White House some 40 years later. So that's another thing that we wanted to tie into this award. Uh, we also gave our Philip J. McCook Award of the Fighting McCooks. He was the first president of the club, uh, you know, part of a, a, an illustrious New York family. Uh, we gave that award that goes back to the 1940s uh, to uh, Senator Roger uh, Marshall, uh, who has become a, a MAGA sort of America first fighter in the Senate uh, in a body that typically does not have many fighters or uh, MAGA senators. And then we also gave our Frederick Rene Coudere Jr. Award. He was a congressman uh, from the Silk Stocking District of the Upper East Side, a conservative congressman uh, who tried to find communist infiltrators in the uh, New York City public education system. We gave that award uh, to Representative Matt Gates. So we had a great lineup of speakers uh, from the congressman to the senator and, of course, to the president. And uh, it was a, uh, a real MAGA America First lineup. Yeah, I was very pleased to see you give the Alan Dulles Award to uh, Alan Jacoby, the president of My Patriot Cigars, who is uh, one of the sponsors of this very show. Uh, And as an activist uh, who has put his money and his activities where his mouth is, uh, nobody deserved that that award more than Alan Jacoby. Great, a great, uh, great honor. A great Uh, member, a great supporter of the club. We're, We're big fans of Mr. Jacoby. So, uh, but Gavin, this isn't all cocktail parties and dress up and fun. You've you've been very good about doing a lot of the guts work of politics, uh, trying to uh, elect Republicans uh, in a you know in the bluest city perhaps in the United States, uh, in one of the bluest states in the United States. Tell us a bit more about that. Well, listen. Uh, right now, uh, we have a Republican member of the city council in every borough except Manhattan. There was a big flip in the Bronx, uh, first time, I think, in 50, 60 years. Uh, All of our incumbent members uh, that are members of the club and also members of the city council all won by double digits, some as high as even 20 points, Uh, whether it's Councilwoman Palladino in Queens or Councilwoman Vina Vernikov in Brooklyn, both of whom were at the gala. Uh, So we've been really doing a good job on the ground here, you know, recruiting candidates, uh, you know, helping their uh, campaigns, knocking on doors, doing all the grassroots efforts uh, that need to be done to win these types of races in, like you said, the bluest city and the bluest state. And uh, we also go on to staff those offices. So we're sort of like a feeder system. So, you know, many of the, the legislative aides, many of the campaign staff, many of the chief of staff, they're all members of our organization, either our board or our broader membership. So uh, we're really building up the infrastructure here in New York, block by block, borough by borough. And listen, I think uh, we're seeing a rightward trend in uh, the state of New York and the city of New York. Some of the biggest shifts to the right, uh, even for President Trump, happened in New York City. I think we saw this past gubernatorial cycle, you know, Congressman Lee Zeldin getting into the high 40s, 47 percent. Uh, these can't be, uh, you know, just simply written off. These have to be looked at as a, uh, a lasting uh, a trend line, a real uh, you know, shift to the right in the Empire State. And I'm glad that the club can be a part of that. And then in addition to the campaign work, you know, we were the first organizations in the country who came out and uh, protested against 
Alvin Bragg's uh, politicized persecution and prosecution of President Trump. We filled up Collect Pond, which is a full city block with more than a thousand people on three days notice. Uh, that's part of our grassroots machine that we're building. And I think the president recognized it. And that was one of the reasons he chose to visit uh, last Saturday evening. Uh, I, look, I, I love Congresswoman Vicky Palladino. She actually reminds me very much of my mother. So I, I'm delighted, <laughs> delighted to hear that you have been active in her campaign. Uh, I, I agree with what you say. I've actually seen polling uh, that shows in New York State uh, a strong swing uh, to President Trump. Now, will it in the end be winnable? Uh, it's too early to say, uh, but I don't think you should write any state off. Uh, the impact of the Biden economy uh, combined with the, uh, the migrant crisis, which has state, uh, city, uh, and local budgets bursting at the seams, also has been responsible for a major spike in crime. I look at the New York City crime statistics as published uh, and then I talk to individual officers. Uh, I just don't believe them. I think, candidly, they are manipulated. Uh, but I think that you might have in New York State uh, the perfect storm. Donald Trump doesn't obviously have to carry New York City. That will never happen. Uh, but he does need to reach a certain vote goal in New York City. Uh, and I think that New York young Republicans are going to play uh, a crucial role uh, in in making that happen. Uh, uh, Gavin, if folks want to join your club, uh, where do they go? Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me on, Roger, and I fully agree with you on New York State. It's a cyclical place, so hopefully we'll catch it at the right uh, you know, part of that cycle and make some changes here that are very much needed, but you can follow uh, the club and all the work we're doing at NYYRC, nyyrc.com, at nyyrc on all social media. And you can follow uh, myself at Gavin Wax on X, on Facebook, on Instagram, and all the rest. And again, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, when is the, when is, uh, the, cub, the club's next uh, major function? We are going to be having a, uh, a Christmas party next week on Wednesday, which I believe is the 20. 20th, Wednesday the 20th, somewhere in Midtown. So we'll have a nice uh, Christmas party. We'll throw up a menorah as well, even though Hanukkah is over for all of our uh, Jewish members, so don't feel excluded. And uh, that'll be the last event of the year. But going into next year, Q1, we're going to roll out some great speakers, some great events. I don't know if it's going to top our uh, our martini social with, uh, with yours truly, with Roger Stone, but uh, we're going to aim uh, for that to be the benchmark of some of our socials and events going into the new year. Uh, it's all very, very exciting. Do you think that there is, uh, among younger people, people your age and in your generation, uh, is there uh, some stigma about being a Republican or is that changing? I think it's changing. I think the youth are, you know, inherently, you know, anti-establishment and they're sort of counter Orthodox, so you know maybe in the nineteen you know fifties, nineteen sixties, you know to be a rebel was to you know rail against the conservative establishment of the time, and now you know the establishment and the media and academia and everything is thoroughly leftist. So you know what we're seeing, particularly from the younger generation, you know younger than millennials, even the Zoomers, 
you know, they're growing up as kind of a lost generation, lost spiritually, lost economically. Well, I really missed being at your gala, but what I particularly missed was not being able to get a stone burger at the Beach Cafe, uh, a tradition uh, post-gala, perhaps next year. Uh, I want to thank our friend uh, Gavin Wax, chairman of the New York Young Republican Club, and I want to remind everybody to please stay tuned for Joe Piscopo with Sunday's with Sinatra.